the leaders of Rome. I hope you're enjoying my deep, sick voice, but it is primarily responsible for there not being an episode last week. But I didn't think I could let it go two weeks without any episode. So here I am, powering through it, and cutting out all of the coughs in GarageBand. Today we are talking about Lucius Cornelius Sulla, one of the most important men to ever take command of Rome. But while Sulla had high ambitions, he never had meteoric ambitions of the type that you would see in the generation that succeeded him, even compared to Marius, whose ambitions far eclipsed Sulla in his desire to change the way that the Roman world worked, and in his desire not to give up power later in life. Sulla wanted greatness and admiration, but he fit well into the existing Roman society, and he didn't feel the need to reshape that world. He was an insider, or more of an insider than Marius ever was. While Marius' family came from outside of Rome, Sulla's were dyed-in-the-wool patricians. And while he never had the touch of the common man that Marius did, he never had Marius' ever-expanding ego, either. None of this, however, meant that he wouldn't be primarily responsible for some of the worst excesses of the civil war that raged during Sulla's lifetime. Just that it was based on some perverted idea that he had to maintain order instead of on exceeding and besting every Roman who had ever come before him. That being said, Sulla was not exactly a standard patrician. His family was definitely a patrician family, but they had fallen into poverty. He received a good education and spoke Greek, but it's not clear where all of his money came from. There are some stories that he might have seduced a older Roman matriarch who did not have any heirs who left him quite a bit of money. Most of his days growing up were spent with entertainers, actors, dancers, chariot racers, and lute players who dotted so much of Rome, and who often fall by the wayside when discussing large political shifts that happen during the Republic or the Empire. These people rarely had any direct involvement in those political shifts, and unlike modern society, Roman society generally considered entertainers to be some of the lowest of the low. Entertainers often have a sort of bipolar relationship with status, where something like the medieval fool is allowed to make fun of and mock the king, but is still considered to be one of the lowest individuals on the status totem pole rubbing elbows with the Richie Rich, but never really being one of them. Entertainers were often seen like this. It's only really with the invention of modern Hollywood that we have this new respect and admiration and wide acceptance of them. So they filled their days with drinking and carousing and singing, and all of this Sulla loved. He would maintain an affection for the scene throughout all of his life, and he spent many of his later years in their company, even while pursuing some of the civil wars that he was fighting. The first time Sulla's name enters the historical sage is under the capture of Jugurtha. Sulla went east with Marius, who was his commander, and who had just been promoted to handle the war. 
and Sulla was a competent lieutenant under Marius, and Marius had a penchant for promoting based on talent instead of just connections. I guess it was lucky for Sulla that he had a little bit of both. And while they are attacking the tribes in Numidia, Marius runs into the same problem that Metellus had run into. Eventually, Jugurtha pulls Brachus from a nearby kingdom named Mauritania into the war. He offers Brachus a third of his kingdom if Brachus can help him defeat the Romans. Brachus jumps at the chance, but when he finally comes to attack Sulla, he is handily defeated by the well-disciplined troops that Marius has organized. And so Sulla has the opportunity to negotiate with Brachus. He goes to Brachus's camp and tries to convince Brachus to betray Jugurtha and come over to the Roman side. The negotiation is not quick. He winds up hanging out in Brachus's camp for a few days, and Jugurtha eventually hears that Brachus has this lieutenant, Sulla, in his command. So he tells Brachus to put Sulla in chains immediately. And Brachus agrees and invites Jugurtha to come see the now-chained Sulla. But when Jugurtha arrives, he walks into the tent and sees Sulla unbound and immediately understands that Brachus has switched sides. So Sulla claps Jugurtha in chains and returns him to his commander, Marius. And Marius does the thing that bosses always do. They take credit. This is not uncommon in ancient Rome. This is not uncommon at any time in history. Whoever is in charge tends to get credit for most of the things that happen. But Marius's particular level of ambition pushes out the story of Sulla's success even more than it might otherwise have. Marius often tells the story without even mentioning Sulla's name, which fuels a bit of frustration on Sulla's part. Marius wasn't even paying lip service to the idea that some of his lower-ranked commanders made important contributions to the campaign. And when Marius goes off to fight the Cimbri and the Teutani, Sulla goes with him, still steaming about what had happened here. But they are victorious against the Teutani, too. We don't have any mention of Sulla's name in these campaigns, so it seems that he likely fought well and fought under Marius and didn't make too many waves about this particular point. Because at the end of this war, we get Marius's semi-disastrous sixth consulship, when he has to use his own power against the people and basically goes into retirement to avoid reminding them of this bad thing that he did. And Sulla rises steadily. He's effective, and he has that insider-outsider dichotomy that tends to dot a lot of the most high-achieving leaders throughout history. Without Marius around, it seems like Sulla more or less put aside the grudge and generally forgets about the bad blood. And so by the time the social war breaks out, even though Marius was still an obvious choice to lead an army against the revolting provinces, the Senate was afraid of him. The Senate still had this fear of Marius and didn't want to give him a seventh consulship. And so they look elsewhere for a commander to fight the war, and they land on Sulla, who had done well during wartime campaigns and had been an effective politician during peacetime and was nowhere near as rabble-rousing and likely to stir up trouble as Marius was. The fact that Marius was slighted here had a pretty similar effect on Marius, 
as when Sulla had been slighted in Numidia. He felt like he had been denied something that was rightfully his. But the biggest difference is that Marius here is more powerful, he's older, and he's more senile. Even still, Sulla marched down south to deal with the Samnite territories that were rebelling, and he made effective progress against them. The Roman people as a whole began to see Sulla as the hero of the social war, just like they had seen Marius as the hero of the Cimbrian War. And Sulla returned to Rome a hero, and he went on to take his first consulship. Which was well-timed, because Mithridates had just killed every Italian in Asia Minor. And with the Asiatic Vespers on everyone's mind, the question was how Sulla would deal with Mithridates. What kind of army would he send against him? And Sulla was given full command of the army to go attack him and bring him back to face the scorn of the people of Rome. But Marius was so annoyed that Sulla had taken the social war from him and now was taking this command from him, a command which Marius still felt was rightfully his that Marius started using some of those old Gracchan tactics. He started working his magic with these boisterous, angry, rabble-rousing people on the floor of the forum, people who are going to yank senators out of their seats and throw them out of the hall if they're not voting in the way that Gaius Marius wants them to vote, people who are going to intimidate others by force and fear to make sure that Gaius Marius gets his way. He wants... Sulla's consulship to be invalidated, and he wants to be declared consul so that he can march against Mithridates. At this point, Gaius Marius has no important friends, but there are still plenty of the people, plenty of these thugs, you might say, who are willing to work for him, who are willing to be on his side just because of the benefits it brings them. So they go, these strong-armed goons go through the Senate chambers, and they forcefully eject anyone who is not willing to turn on Sulla. Sulla even had to run away from the city for his own safety. He didn't have any troops in the city. You don't march an army into Rome. This is an old tradition. This is a truly important piece of the Roman Maius Maiorum, of the way that things had always been done. You never marched an army into Rome because they were always afraid of what could happen with important generals trying to take over and turn themselves into tyrants. So they wanted to make it illegal to march armies into Rome. But of course, Rome didn't have illegal illegal. They just had the way things had been done. And so this was just a tradition that you did not march an army into Rome. So Sulla did not have any force in Rome that could counteract Marius' strong-armed goons. But he does have a force just outside of Rome. He makes a quick retreat to his army, and he goes into their camp and explains what has happened. And his army, which is now firmly on Sulla's side, and has now completely been trained to expect to receive benefits from Sulla and from no one else, is not interested in Gaius Marius becoming the new leader of this army. They're afraid of what might happen to all of the rewards that they had been promised from the social war that they just fought. Their fate was tied to that of Sulla. So his army, both on the side of his commander for sort of a general idea of what's right, and because it was really something that was in their own best interest, demands that Sulla take them and march on Rome. 
violate this old tradition, violate this old prohibition. And Sulla wanted to do it anyways. It was always what Sulla wanted to do. So he makes the decision to cross his own Rubicon here. He didn't cross the Rubicon River, but it's a very similar thing to what Caesar will do in a couple of years. He decides to march this army on Rome for the first time, at least as far as we have a record of. Almost every one of Sulla's officers deserted. They were all patricians, and they understood what a break with tradition this was, and they weren't going to be any part of it. But the rest of the army marched straight into the city, and Marius's horses put up somewhat of a defense. They had some gladiators, they had some local policemen, some of the strong-armed goons kind of putting up a street-by-street defense, but they were nothing compared to the well-disciplined and effective fighting force that Sulla commanded. They were just taken completely apart. Marius escaped out of a back gate, and this is when he flees down to North Africa. But Sulla reestablishes the Senate as the power in control of the city. The Senate reconfirms Sulla as consul, and he goes off to march against Mithridates to fight the war that he had always wanted to fight. He sails his army across the Adriatic Sea, and they land in the Roman province of Illyria. This is modern-day Croatia, and you should keep an eye on it because it's going to be very important in a few centuries when it starts sprouting Roman emperors. Sulla was headed for Athens, which had gone over to Mithridates because of the promise of freedom from Roman domination. And Sulla wanted a victory that was both a military coup and a symbolic one. Athens still held a place of primacy among most people in the ancient world. On his way to Athens, Sulla marched straight past Mithridates' forces, which were in the sea. At the time, they were commanded by a man named Archelaus, who was Mithridates' most effective lieutenant. Sulla encircled Athens from the land, but Archelaus kept the sea routes open, which made winning a siege difficult for Sulla. But he set in and waited patiently. It's right around this point that Marius returns to Rome to claim his seventh consulship and incur one of the most terrible purges that Rome had seen on its own citizens. Sulla is officially declared an enemy of the state, and many of the people who Marius would have killed start fleeing into Sulla's camp in Greece. Sulla hears about this as his family members and friends arrive And his heart goes out to those who are still in the city, but he stays at the gates of Athens. And by patiently waiting for a time when the Athenians aren't paying quite close attention when they have a festival, he manages to get some men over the wall and inside the gates, which lift the siege for all of Sulla's troops. And he lets them almost completely off the leash. The near-complete pillaging of the city of Athens is legendary and is a model for all of the eastern provinces as to what will happen if they continue to stay in revolt against Rome. Sulla even burns the Athenian port to the ground on his way out. He follows Athens up with another great victory at Chaeronea, where he defeats 
the forces under Archelaus's command with only a couple of Roman casualties. But once Sulla is victorious in Chaeronea, Cinna, back in Rome, starts taking notice. Now, Rome had flipped against Sulla since he left, mostly because it had been so unheard of to have someone march an army into the heart of Rome. Even though he'd been doing it for ostensibly the right reasons, he was breaking every tradition in the book. And that had paved the way for Marius and Cinna to return, and then once Marius passed, for Cinna to basically rule Rome alone. But Cinna is aware that if Sulla is victorious time after time in the east, he's going to march that army straight back into Rome, and Cinna is not going to be safe at all. So Cinna sends a new consul named Flaccus out at the head of an army to relieve Sulla of his command, to tell Sulla that he is no longer in charge of any Roman army, and that he needs to come back to Rome for trial. And Flaccus shows up, camps right next to Sulla's army, and begins demanding that Sulla relinquish control of his army. But Sulla shines in moments like these. Because officially, he delayed and equivocated and waited all that time, letting his men mingle. Letting all of these troops who were loyal to Sulla and not to the Roman state, and certainly not to this man Flaccus who just showed up out of nowhere, mingle with these other new Roman troops who had just arrived. Tell them of all of the riches that Sulla had promised them. Tell them of all the victories that they were winning here in the East. Tell them of all the great things that they were doing under a competent commander. And many of them started leaving their lines and coming over to Sulla's side. Flaccus was bleeding men left and right, all while Sulla was not officially defying him, but also not complying. Eventually, Flaccus had to move just to prevent his army from going over to Sulla wholesale. And not long after this, Sulla proves the point by winning another stunning victory at Orcumenus, which leaves Sulla and Mithridates in a bit of a tough position, because Sulla has been nothing but victorious but he really needs to return to Rome to deal with the situation back there. And Mithridates can't defeat Sulla in any meaningful way. And both of them have to contend with the fact that this man Flaccus is now marching around Asia Minor with a Roman legion, and he's probably not going to pay attention to any deal that Sulla and Mithridates make. But to their luck, Flaccus was a strict disciplinarian and not someone who had ever really served in an army before. So he expected his men to obey his every word, which is something that no, I would say, long-term army commander who achieves a high degree of effectiveness tends to expect of their men. It's the sort of thing that people who read a lot of books about how to command an army expect of their men, but not usually the thing that people who've commanded a lot of armies expect. But eventually he experienced a rebellion and he was executed by his second-in-command, who was not more qualified than Flaccus, but was just less of a disciplinarian than Flaccus was. So Sulla and Mithridates met to discuss terms, and the records of this moment are pure political theater. Sulla and Mithridates meet and loudly discuss the way that the other had violated them 
Rome encouraging its neighbors to attack Pontus, Mithridates massacring every Roman in Asia Minor. But at the end, because neither wanted to keep fighting, they settle on some pretty lenient terms. And Sulla gets to return to Rome, but he first has to figure out how to deal with this army that used to be Flaccus's. But he starts to catch a few lucky breaks here. Flaccus has already been executed by one of his own commanders, and while the new guy was not more likely to bow to Sulla, he was less competent than Flaccus was. So Sulla marches up to this army, which immediately defects over to him. This army had no interest in fighting for Flaccus' sub-commander. He was completely ideologically bankrupt. It's just that he was less of a disciplinarian than Flaccus was. And now that he is a defunct Roman commander, he commits suicide rather than face Sulla in any kind of direct fight. And so Sulla starts looking towards Rome. Cinna was really scared now. He didn't want to wait for Sulla to get close to Rome because he was afraid that any local Sullen support would manifest itself and come out of hiding and basically turn the city straight over to him. And so he takes an opportunity to march an army east to quell a rebellion that is going on in a different part of the eastern provinces. But Cinna has little experience leading an army too. And he is a new leader who is terrified of not making his mark, so he relentlessly drove his men, forcing them to march across Italy, and completely deaf to their objections about his leadership, which inevitably, just like Flaccus, leads to a revolt on their part. And his own troops stoned him to death. Sulla now has an open field on Rome, and he basically gets to march straight for it. Sulla moved quickly. He pushed his army fast so that another Marian partisan didn't sweep in and steal Rome out from under him. Rome was still technically under the sway of Marian partisans, and it would send out a couple more consuls commanding recently raised legions in an attempt to waylay Sulla. There's a moment here which I believe has the distinction of being the first time that two Roman legions met and fought each other in the field. It is something that would become disturbingly common over the next few decades. Sulla pushes his way through a lot of these legions. They're all recently raised and basically from the last dregs of whatever anyone can raise allegiance from. All of the good soldiers either went with Sulla years ago or went with Cinna on his most recent attempt to go conquer Sulla. Or went with Cinna on his most recent attempt to go stop Sulla. There's not a whole lot of people in Rome and around the surrounding areas that are effective fighters anymore. And there are no effective commanders in the area. It makes Sulla's job considerably easier. As Sulla is making his way through all of these legions, he manages to defeat a legion commanded by a man named Asaganus. This man came at Sulla with an army, and the army basically defected over to Sulla's side immediately because the soldiers were 
very competent at understanding which way the wind was blowing. Asagenus decided to sit down with Sulla and discuss terms with him, and he claimed to be on Sulla's side now, but this was just a ruse. He wanted an opportunity to escape from Sulla's grasp and return to his own Marian side. Sulla would see this betrayal as sort of the straw that broke the camel's back, the last chance that anyone would have to come over to his side. The people who continued to resist him after Asaganus's betrayal are seen as fully culpable in Sulla's mind. There are many people who are coming over to Sulla's side, which probably fuels his righteousness and feeling that he can kill anyone who isn't already on his side. And some of the people coming over to Sulla's side now are people who will be very important in the next wave of Roman wars. Two of the three future triumvirs will join Sulla's side at this time. Marcus Licinius Crassus and Pompey, the not-yet-great, both declare for Sulla and bring armies to aid him. And this support comes to a head at a notorious moment known as the Battle of the Colline Gate that we'll go over in more detail in the Crassus episode. But Sulla is victorious here at the gates of Rome, and he marches into the city, The current leadership of Rome is pretty terrified because most of the Sulla supporters, most of the definitively Sullen supporters have been executed or exiled at this point. And almost anyone who is still in a leadership position has at least participated in these purges. And now Sulla's here to make them pay the piper. Sulla has the Senate declare him dictator but he has them declare him dictator for life, dictator without end. Usually dictatorship in the Roman Republic was limited to terms of six months. This is unique and is kind of a crazy precedent. He's doing all of this because he feels like he needs to root out a conspiracy, but the methods that he's doing it will be more important than what he's doing. The future ambitious men of Rome will pay more attention to how he did things than why, because they weren't as interested in why Sulla was doing what he was doing. Sulla immediately set about purging opponents that were now dotted through the government. This was an unpleasant time. There were around 1,500 men in the nobility on the list that was first posted in the forum, and anyone who killed or captured these men was given a reward. But it's especially destructive because Sulla stopped being very concerned about who got on the prescription list. There are a lot of men who... One of the features of this prescription list, one of the features of prescription lists in general, when you start murdering rich people is property confiscation. And there are a lot of people who get on these lists because they are wealthy. It becomes almost a euphemism, a turn of phrase, to say that this man was killed by his bath or that one by his garden. It's 
identifiable that these people had nothing to do with the Civil War up to that point, but become victims of it because Sulla needs so much money to pay all of these soldiers that he's promised. What's more, it's pretty easy to accuse someone and get them put on the list. A lot of people are saying he was a Marian supporter, he was a Marian supporter, and they can get old enemies or their creditors onto these lists and better their own circumstances. Very often, anyone who starts off accusing someone eventually becomes accused themselves. And over all of this, a fairly angry and frustrated Sulla is watching over these killings. After the first 1,500 people were posted, Sulla is notoriously supposed to have said that this was all he could think of and that there were others that he would prescribe them at some future time. Sulla doesn't limit himself to the prescriptions. They just make up the bulk of his early reign in a very Machiavellian style. He also puts together some reforms designed to ensure that the Senate will continue to be the group in charge. He re-adds a bunch of senators. He raises a bunch of equestrians to the senatorial class because so many senators have died between the purges that Senna and Marius put in and now the purges that Sulla is putting in. There's a lot of wealthy people dying. The numbers aren't here. The, these deaths during the purges are nowhere near the deaths that were experienced on the battlefield between all of these different wars. But the who that is dying here, it's all wealthy people. It's all rich people. It's all important named individuals. And in today's class-conscious society, you can be a bit dismissive of it, but it was psychically damaging to the Romans of the time, even if you weren't a member of that top class. He was very afraid of Marius regaining a bit of power. He makes it a point to try and kill Marius's nephew. But Marius's nephew puts together a cunning enough defense. He gets enough people on his side fighting for him, clamoring to make sure that he is well-treated. And Sulla accepts this, saying, In that man goes many a Marius of the young Julius Caesar. He is worried that people are going to use Marius as a martyr. He digs up Marius's bones. Marius had been buried after he died at the beginning of his seventh consulship. He digs up Marius's bones and he tosses them in a river to make sure that no one has anywhere to go to to worship the war hero. And then once he is convinced that no one can do what Marius did, and really can do what Sulla himself did, he steps down. He relinquishes power. He gives up his authority and goes into retirement because he didn't have these grand dreams. He was just uninterested in following the laws in order to prevent other people from destroying the Roman Senate, in order to prevent other people from destroying the Roman state. And in the end, he winds up destroying the state himself. 
Caesar, years later, is supposed to have said that the only mistake Sulla ever made was giving up power. Implying that if he, Caesar, had been Sulla, he would have simply hung on to power. Sulla will die several years later in retirement, and the Roman system will slowly start to rebuild itself. But it won't have long, because we've already seen the entrance of all three of the triumvirs, and they're still young, they're still in their 20s, or Caesar's in his teens, but we are not very long away from these three men tearing apart Rome for their own ambitions to achieve their own greatness and doing so with as much nonchalance as Sulla and Marius did, possibly even more. Thank you very much for listening. I hope my sick, cracked voice didn't upset you, or maybe you liked it. Uh, if you have a chance, please rate and review my podcast on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. And I hope each of you got to make some history this week. Thanks.